You'll please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 21 and 22. We're getting to the last couple of weeks in our study on longing for heaven. And so last week we saw that there is no such thing as purgatory. And so there is the understanding that we either are saved or we're not saved. We don't get a second chance. We don't get to be prayed into something. And so there is the reality that we need to be very focused in trying to understand what is it that we're finding and seeing as we begin to long for heaven. Now again, let me ask you a question. Have you been tired lately? Are you overwhelmed? Are you anxious, ready to quit? Bad things happen to you? You've gone through struggles and trials? Let me introduce you to somebody, somebody I did not know about until this past week. Her name was Florence Chadwick. And Florence Chadwick, back in her day, was one of the premier swimmers, uh, long-distance swimmers, and open uh, water swimmers. So she was recognized as being the woman with the records to swim the English Channel both ways. So she swam from England to France and France to England. Uh, She was someone who was renowned throughout the world for doing these accomplishments. And so in 1952, she decided that she was going to swim the 26 miles from Catalina Island to the coast of California. And so she started to swim uh, this course, and there were people in boats along watching out for the sharks and making sure she was okay. And her mother was in one of the boats, and she got uh, a good ways into it, and then a big fog settled in over the water. And she couldn't see uh, the coast anymore. And so she got to a point where she was talking to her mom and said, I think I want to quit. And the mom said, do whatever you want to do. But uh, you could just keep swimming and and finish it. And so she swam for about another hour. And then she reached the 15 hours and 55 minute mark of swimming and decided to quit. Well, what she didn't know is that she was then for one mile away from shore. And this is what she said. All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Now she, two months later, does swim it again, and she completes it even when the fog rolled in. So my question to you is, can you see heaven? Or have we become too comfortable here? What is our focus? See, God gives us four chapters without sin. He gives us Genesis 1 and 2, and then he gives us Revelation 21 and 22. Those are only four chapters in all of Scripture that describe a world without sin. And so this morning, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to truly turn your eyes upon Jesus to look full into his face. And then truly the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Strangely dim. In the light of his glory and his grace. Let's pray as we come to the word. Heavenly Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit would move in such a way that you would truly give us eyes to see and hearts to understand. Father, there are many people within this building this morning who are struggling. They're struggling with the things that they're viewing with their eyes or struggling with finances, others with sicknesses, others with divorce, others with hard marriages. 
extended family members who are going through trials and tribulations. Lord, our our national threats that are continuing to go on. Lord, it's easy to take our eyes off of you. Lord, it's easy to quit. So, Father, I ask that you would be the one that brings the encouragement, Lord, that you would give us truly the opportunity to see your symbolism, your gifts, your truths, your promises this morning. So, Father, you teach us and you change us and you continue to build our hope who can only be found in Jesus Christ alone. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in chapters 21 and 22, we're given four pictures of the new heaven and the new earth. And they're given in a symbolic way. It's given as a bride. It's given as a city. It's given as a temple. And it's given as a garden. And so we're not going to deal with the bride aspect because we're going to look at that next week as we finish our series. So we're going to look at why did God give us these symbols, these pictures of a city and a temple and a garden. Well, the first thing that we need to recognize in regards to Revelation 21 and 22 is that it's about symbolism. R.C. Sproul says this, Symbols in the New Testament point beyond themselves to a deeper and a better reality than they themselves describe. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we have human words and our images try to strain to express, but we can't really get all of it right. And so the Apostle John is trying to describe to us as best as he can what he's seen. And he's trying to describe it to us as if we're seeing things here. So, you know, so you look at things like uh, it's transparent as gold. Well, gold for us is not transparent. So what what does that mean? Well, it means that John was trying to describe the, the, the things that he saw as best as he could in our human words. And so as he's trying to describe this, he's given to us some pictures, pictures for us to look at. And the first one that he gives to us is that of a city. And he wants us to understand that there is a city, and he's given us this great symbolism because there is safety. Now he's given us this understanding of stability, for we have hope. And why is this hope? Because he's writing this to, and this is always a big deal, remember, to ask who's it written to? Well, it was written to the persecuted Christians during that time. And so the questions he's asking them, are you going to be faithful to what God has called you to be? Are you going to become cowards? And we've already seen from the passage that there are those who will not inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And so he looks and says, he says, here, I want to give you the hope. And he tells you this by saying there's some great foundations. And here's where we find from Matthew 7, 24 through 27, everyone that who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will not be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And as the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and the great was the fall of it. See, there's a big thing of the importance of a foundation. We all understand that. We live in Florida. We know what it's like to have great winds and uh, floods that come. 
And again, I want you to understand that there is no difference between the wise man and the foolish man in regards to the external things that happened. They both went through the storm. How they responded was very different. For the man who's had his foundation solid upon Christ found himself not moved. But the foolish man who puts his his ways in the way of the world, who took it easy on himself. It's easy to dig and put foundations in the sand. Don't believe me? Go to the beach. But how many of those sand castles do we build that stand the next day? None. Try to dig onto the rock. That's hard. That's a struggle. But it's a sure foundation and it brings that stability to us. And so he's saying this city has a stability that, listen, he gives us a view of 12,000, that's 1,400 miles. Do you get that? That's the foundation that holds that up. And so there's a sure stability, but it also gives us a sense of security. It says that the walls, the walls are vast. It also talks about the gates. Now think of the, it's one pearl. Think of the size of that clam. Have you ever thought about that? It's one pearl. That's a huge clam. And what does it come from? An irritation that he turns into something beautiful. And there's 12 of them. And these gates are, listen, never shut. Now, again, think about the society we live in. I went and had lunch with someone this past week at Burger Inn. And so it's a place where you get to eat outside and your car is parked literally 20 feet from you at best. So what's the first thing I do when I get out of the car to go eat? I hit the lock button. Why? Because we live in a world where we have to lock everything. For those that are older, do you remember the days when you could walk around the neighborhood and you would just leave your door open? Because you knew nobody's going to come in, nobody's going to steal anything. As soon as you go out nowadays, you're always wondering, who's going to break in? Who's going to steal stuff out of my garage if I leave my garage door open? (laughs) One neighbor of mine left his garage door open on accident, and I went and knocked. It was late at night, but I wanted him to put his garage door down because, we, you know, obviously we have people that come around, pull handles on cars, steal stuff out of people's cars and stuff like that. You know how he answered the door? With a gun. He goes, oh, oh wait a minute, I got to put this away. It's like, dude, I'm your neighbor. I said who I was. But he, he answered the door with a gun because that's the world we live in. This is going to be a city where the gates will never have to be shut. And not only will they not have to be shut, but then there's angels upon every gate. So he's given us this picture that no one will ever be able to destroy this city. We don't have to worry. And so he gives us this safety and this this vision that he's given, but he also shows us the beauty. Whoops. He shows us the beauty because he begins to detail a description of how these things are going to be made. They're precious jewels. Priceless. And so the, the beauty is going to be so overwhelming to us. I want you to think now because um, there's a new product called Enchroma. 
that's out. And enchroma is uh, glasses that are made for people who are colorblind. And they're able to put on these glasses and they're able to see color for the first time the way it's supposed to be. Go online, look at some of these uh, videos. It's, it's overwhelming, the response, when people get to see the actual colors. I want you to kind of get that in mind when you're going to be able to see the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to be beyond your imagination. Think, think right now. I mean, I wish I could, if I wasn't fearful that you all would fall asleep, I'd ask you to do this whole sermon with your eyes closed. Because I want you to get the view of whatever you think, whatever you can dream or imagine, it pales in the reality of what we're going to experience. So dream big. And so the preciousness is described to the bride, and we'll see that next week. We're going to look at the bride in Christ. But this beauty is overwhelming to us. And so you have security, you have safety, you have beauty, but you also have fellowship. It's a city. And so it begins to talk about the foundations and the gates, and it talks about the Old and New Testament believers. We're all going to be together. And not only is it going to be all the believers, but it's going to be from all nations, all tribes, all tongues. Which means we have more in common with a brother over in the Middle East than we do with someone who's not a brother or sister here in the United States. Because we're unified in Christ and there's harmony. Which means that there's no longer any sin. So we don't lie to each other anymore. We tell each other the truth. We don't worry about, does this person, is he really telling me what I need to hear? Is he really telling me? We're not ever worried about that. We're not worried about being made fun of. We're not worried about fitting in. All of us are living in harmony in a a city that's 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. That's big. And to have no one that you're in conflict with. We get to know each other fully because we get to have perfect fellowship. Because again, for most people in the Jewish day, cities were places that were seen in regards to darkness, evil. You were violated in the cities. And yet for this city, there's no darkness. It's all full of righteousness. There's no fear of people or things. And so this comes about, but the the application that we need to make is we are being transformed now. So we're being transformed into the likeness of Christ, so we should be living in harmony with one another now. We shouldn't have to worry about gossip and lying to one another. We shouldn't have to worry about not being forgiven for something. One of the great things that I get as a pastor is when I make statements that are foolish or whatever, and I go back and said, oh, man, I, I, didn't even, I didn't have that inside. I didn't know that. Please forgive me. And the people who are Christians say, not a problem. It's the people that I struggle with are the ones that were just like, well, I say I'm going to forgive you, but I'm really not. And I'm going to hold it against you for the next year or ten 
or 20. There's nothing, nothing that we can do to one another that cannot be forgiven. How do we know that? Because of Christ. So that's why he tells us, if there's something in the midst of you, go and fix it. And then how will the world know that we are Christians? Because we wear big chains. Because we have nice churches. Because we dress nicely. No, because we love one another. Love. So that's what he's calling us to do, to have that perfect fellowship and the security. Then he starts to talk to us about the temple. And he says, there is no temple in the city. For the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb that was slain. And so we have, I want you to understand that there's Old Testament imagery here. And what he's talking about is what we call the Shekinah glory. Now the Shekinah glory was seen in the Old Testament where we had the the tabernacle when the people of God were out in the wilderness. We had the temple in the city. Okay, And so we talk about the Shekinah glory. And so the Shekinah glory is the thing that where God in representation moved with the people. So they were able to go out and to see this. And it says that the glory, and again, I, I want you to get out of, I know there's the, the thing about Moses that comes around Easter time and, and they had like this little drawn in, they didn't have computer models and all that kind of stuff, but they drew in this little cyclone, remember? And it's like swirling around and you're just like, that's not real. Okay, it's not. Please understand that. But I want you to understand it's not small either. The Shekinah glory, the, the, the cloud that was above it, was like the size of Texas. And, and I want you to, to grasp and understand, this is the God that we serve. He's not small and he's not controllable. And so his Shekinah glory is everywhere. I want you to hear back from Isaiah 6. This is where Isaiah is in uh, the presence of God. And it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now again, there's a modern application because we see this. Okay, Because we, we still look at uh, England with its queen and its princesses, and we still care to, to watch a family that absolutely has no power, but they have money. And they still have the titles. And so we get up at weird hours if you're really going to watch it live or then you watch it later. But you see that the princess or the soon-to-be queen or whatever has a robe. And the robe is carried by children. And the greater the robe, the more important the individual. And it says that his robe filled the temple. That's right. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it said, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now think of how excruciating that had to be. Live coals placed upon your lips, which are some of the most sensitive area on your body. And he says this, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And this is how Isaiah responds after having his lips burned with the coals, after seeing the Lord God, he says, here I am, send me. Would we respond with that same vision? Because this is what God's giving to us in the vision of having no temple. Everything is temple and glory fills everywhere. It's all about truth and purity. No place can you ever go in the new heavens and the new earth where there is not God's glory present. And so I want you to understand the vastness of who God is. Then we get a picture of also not only is God's glory everywhere, but it also says that we will be bringing in glory. Verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does not what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we're bringing glory. Now, what does that mean? That means all the glory and honor that we have from all the nations is brought in, which probably means that there's still cultural variety. There's still going to be differences between the African nations and the European nations and those that are of the Asian and those that are uh, down in Mexico. I mean, all of these cultural distinctions are still there. And there's also, it says, a king from these nations. So there's still government, it seems like. Boo. But listen, imagine a government... Without sin. And the government actually does what it's supposed to do. And all of these kings are coming in and they're bringing glory to God. They're bringing their cultural distinctives. They're bringing everything. And we get to still experience it. I mean, that's one of the things that we get to enjoy in America. We get to have hot tacos. Spicy food. We get to have all the nations come here and bring all the things. I like getting Italian stuff from Jill. I like going to Mexican restaurants. I like getting soda bread that hasn't come from someone. But that's beside the point. But we have all of these cultural distinctives that are coming in and we get to enjoy them. We don't become just single individual people with individuals just one mind. It's not the Borg. We get to keep our creativity and our distinctiveness. We get to bring it in and bring God glory through it. And so we have this glory that's coming and it's being spread throughout all of creation, the new heavens and the earth, but we also get the privilege to worship. Now again, is it going to be a, a everlasting worship service like this? No. No. Everything becomes worship. But in the midst of that, the best thing that we get to do is we get to see God face to face. 
Do you understand how overwhelming that is? Remember Moses in the Old Testament? Where do you get to see God? He got to see his backside. And it so impacted Moses, it so overwhelmed his face, he was shining with the glory of God when he came down that the people were just like, man, you got to go put a veil on. you got to go put a mask on. We can't stand to look at you. Think what your face is going to look like when you get to see him face to face. You're going to be glowing. All of us get to glow. And as we get to glow, our longing will be to see him. Now think of this. For those that have gone away to in military service or you had to go away for um, long trips from your family, whatever, it's usually what do you do? You take a picture. And you keep that picture. And the picture's there to remind you. But you don't come home and you don't see your wife and go, you know what, I'm glad to see you in person, but you know what I really like? I really like the picture. When we get to see God, it will be so life-altering. Because the thing that we should be longing for more than anything gets to be real. And we see him face to face. We have intimate communion with him. And truly, he becomes an audience of one. That's what this is supposed to be. And if our country keeps going the way, it's going to be harder for us to come here without problems. So what are we going to do? Stay at home? Compromise? Or will our longing still be to come and worship God no matter what? Is going on because he is the one who's true and faithful and pure and good. See, we have this opportunity to worship, not just to see him, but to have pure worship. Pure worship. Everything that we do is going to be worshiped to his glory, to his honor, and it's going to be unhindered worship. And again, I'm not saying that our personalities aren't going to be there. Okay? You're never going to see me acting like um, McCartney up here. Okay? You're not going to see me. Well, he used to be able to do that with his hair. Not anymore. But doing his hair and rocking out and stuff like that. When I go to Florida State games and stuff where I do get passionate and stuff, I'm not there doing my arm and yelling and, and getting up in garnet and gold full body suits, which would be a problem anyways, but painting my face and all. I'm never, ever going to do that, no matter how much I love Florida State. So maybe I'm not going to be like, yeah, Jesus. But maybe I will. And the thing is, I won't care what everybody else is thinking. Like we do here unhindered worship for an audience of one to his glory to his honor why? because we're his priests his priests and we worship him as such 
So we have the city description, we have the temple description, but then we also have the description of the garden. Look at chapter 22, starting at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more, and there will be no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So here we have the picture of the garden, and the first thing we understand is that the Lamb is upon his throne, just like in the Isaiah passage. The lamb is on the throne. And so it goes back. What he starts doing is giving us a plan of going back to the plan that was Eden. Remember, that plan was destroyed by the first Adam. Adam messed it up. And so he gets kicked out. Now, remember, an angel is put there. He's not allowed to go back. He's not allowed to eat of the tree of life. That's a good thing. Because the last thing we needed was Adam to go eat of that tree and then be forever in sin. So it's a mercy of God to kick us out of the garden. But he restores it through the second Adam, Christ. And it says from the throne, not around the throne, not near the throne, but the streams of water come from the throne. So that tells us very clearly, is there ever an opportunity for this to happen again? No. Nothing impure can come about. Why? Because we are washed in the blood of Christ. The covenant relationship has been paid. He shed his blood. He dealt with hell and sin so we don't have to. And so it flows from the throne. And around it has the tree of life and it's the healing for all nations. All have access because now at this point, the devil's gone. He's in the lake of fire. Hades is gone. It's in hell. So there's no more sin, death, and and we'll see you again next week. Everything is taken care of. All of our pain, all of our struggles, all of our trials, they're gone. And so here we have this garden, but it also says that we get to continue to reign with God. Now again, this goes back to the original. We were supposed to have dominion over all the earth. Go and subdue it. For whose glory? For God's glory. And so here we are, we're reigning with the Lamb, and this time we have perfect knowledge and joy. We're perfect. And what it's doing here for us is what uh, the Apostle John says to us, is he's saying, I want you to write these words down. Now again, John gets messed up here, he bows down before the angel, and he says, get up, you're not supposed to do that. Oh yeah, sorry. But he also goes on to write, and he says, tell them this, let the evildoer still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. For I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So he's telling us that this reigning with God, we're saying to people now, by the way that we live, this is what's coming The Lord is coming back and he's going to judge. And he's going to judge you for what you have done. You're either in Christ or you're not. 
And if you're not in Christ, then you're going to be judged according to how you have lived. And again, all I have to do is ask you to raise your hands if anyone in here has lied. And every one of you would raise your hand. Has anyone stolen anything? Yes, every hand would be in here. Now, you might not have robbed a bank, but you've taken something. You've taken something from work that wasn't yours. You've taken something from a family member that wasn't yours. So people have lied. People have stolen. People have cheated. All these things. So now you will be held accountable for all of those. And God says if you have one sin, the payment is hell. Unless we know Christ. And for those that know Christ, then this is what he says. He says, I am bringing my promises to fruition for I bring recompense. He is the warrior when he comes back. He's not the infant child. And he says, I'm going to repay for everything that people have done. And then he says to this at the, at the, at the end of the passage, he says to John, come Lord Jesus. Because here it is. God is telling us that there is an accuracy of the word. He is faithful and true from the beginning to the end. His promises are sure. It's not like our politicians. He never changes. And that's a good thing. And so he is always faithful and true. There's the authority of the word, which means that we are called to holy living now. We are called to be Christ-like, transformed by the renewing of our minds. Constantly. Then we also have the accessibility of the word. He tells everyone to come. One of my professors said this. He goes, the gospel of God, the gospel of God found in Christ is shallow enough for an infant to wade and deep enough for a theologian to swim. We will never fully comprehend who God is. We'll never comprehend his love. We'll never comprehend how good he is. We'll never comprehend how holy he is. But he tells all of us to come. And he opens to us what we can understand for the moment. But more than anything, we want to hear that the finished work of Christ is done. Now I want to finish with this because I want you to bring you to a scene in the um, Tolkien's, uh, the last one, The Return of the King. Now, the movie, if you're only someone who's watched the movie, it ends with everything good, right? So they defeat, he throws the, the ring in, um, it's destroyed, uh, everything is destroyed, the armies are destroyed, and everything's united under the new king, and then the, the hobbits go back to the Shire, and everything's good. And Sam marries the woman of his dream and blah, blah. They get to go with the elves and see Frodo and all that kind of stuff off. Okay, that's great. That's not how the book is, though. Okay, because if you read the book, you know that there's another chapter where they go back to the Shire. And the Shire isn't innocent anymore. It's been taken over by Sauron. Now, he's not a white wizard anymore, but he is someone who's taken over and he's abusing the Shire. 
And the point is this. For the hobbits that went and became warriors and became mature in who they are, now they're ready to go back to fight the war within the Shire. It's not easy. It's not, we, we don't just sit here and go, oh, well, uh, Jesus paid the price on the cross. It's all good. I don't know about your life, but mine doesn't seem so good right now. I don't like COVID. I, I, I don't like sickness and death. So what's the purpose of God telling us Revelation 21, 22? He's telling us as Christians, now go and be the change. You're transformed, you're equipped. Now go and be the people of God in this place. You don't think that you're not going to shine all the more in the midst of the darkness? Do we look forward to the day when we're going to be in the new heavens and the earth? Heck yeah. Can't wait. And I say with the, with the apostle, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. But until that time, we are called to be the salt and the light to the world. The darker it gets, and I'm telling you, it will get darker. I'm not making a prediction for who wins the election. I'm reading the Bible, and the Bible says it's going to get worse. And it says that the whole world is going to surround you. And I want you to think of those, the, the black gates. Remember when the armies go and they're, they're at the black gates and they're calling the, the people out so they wouldn't look uh, for Frodo and throwing the ring in and stuff like that. And do you remember the whole army surrounds that one small army? Do you remember that? But when the ring is thrown in, what happens? They're all swept away. I want you to get that symbolism in your mind because that's what God talks about. The people, the evil on this earth is going to surround the Christians and it's going to seem like there's no way out. How are we going to deal with this? And God says, I've got it. Don't you worry. That's why he gave us this picture. The city he's creating will never, ever be taken. The glory he has will never, ever be diminished the mercy and grace he gives to us will be never-ending. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an incredible picture that you've painted for us. And Lord, I, I pray that the people in here would be encouraged, Lord, that they would look to those, uh, to those pictures and to look at the details that you've given to us. And Lord, I, I know I can't give details of whether our pets are going to be in heaven or if there's dinosaurs, whether we're going to know each other. Are we going to be able to pick up snakes? Lord, I, I don't know any of that. But Lord, I know this. I know we'll be with you. And Father, there is no greater thing than to be satisfied in Christ alone. So, Father, for those who are here this morning that are struggling, that are questioning, maybe, Lord, even some in here this morning that hate, hate you and hate being here because they're forced to. Father, I ask that you would open their eyes to see that you love them 
with a love that cannot be surpassed. Lord, that you love them with a love that cost you the life of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we can't even begin to fathom that. And so, Father, let us apply this word. Let us become the light in the midst of the darkness. No matter how bad it gets, Lord, may we never bring shame to your name. And, Father, while we still have the chance, may we go and tell everyone the truth of the gospel message so they, too, might come and worship you and be with you forever in the new heavens and in the new earth. For we pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.